You're listening to a podcast from 702. To drive. 702. The Naked Scientist. Happy, happy Monday, Dr. Chris Smith. Happy Monday, too, to you. How are you? I am great, and how are you doing? Well, I'm still waiting for my Valentine's card <laughs> to come. It's obviously been held up. Um, no, it's, I'm much better now. You know, we had this massive storm last week, mm. and it was called Storm Eunice. And you know what it's like when you see the weather forecast coming and everyone says, oh, it's just a load of hot air from the weather forecasters. It's yes. going to be fine. Uh, and it, it was quite blowy, actually. And it took out my electricity. And uh, I played Scrabble by candlelight because it was gone for about a day. No power. Uh, cut me off in the middle of a program, actually. I was recording a program for the Naked Scientists and um, thought, you know, I thought I'd safeguarded against everything. No, didn't. <laughs> I couldn't safeguard against that. So we had to, yeah, we had to go back to old-fashioned values and sort of candlelight and uh, scrabble. It was quite fun. Listen, that life is our reality here. It's called load <laughs> shedding. <laughs> In case well, you no know, one has told we, you. Well, I don't know. A few, a few years ago, I've moved house now, but where I lived before, um, it was a running joke between me and everyone at 702 because I got my cables to my house nicked more often than the guys in Choburg had their cables wow. next. And they said, Chris, that's really saying something. Because, yeah, these people used to come and steal the phone lines until they replaced them with fiber optic and then they weren't worth nicking anymore. But um, people used to nick the phone lines on a roughly weekly basis. And they us- usually made it line up with when I was in the middle of trying to do a program. And so we would be taken off air. And, uh, yeah, it became a bit of a running joke. So I- I'm very familiar with uh, the-, the constraints of, uh, of that-, that come with both where I live and where you live. There we go. O double one double eight three O seven O two O seven two seven O two one seven O two is where you can send through your WhatsApp messages and voice notes. Doctor Chris Smith is here, our naked scientist, to ask or answer all of your weird and wonderful questions. Doctor, a question. Has Murphy's law ever been scientifically proven? Uh, well, Murphy's Law, also known as Sod's Law, is the whole question of if you assume that something is going to happen, it probably will. A bit like if you say, well, I won't take my umbrella out with me because I don't think it's going to rain, it will probably rain. But if I do take the umbrella, it definitely won't. It's a kind of gambler's fallacy. It's a psychological thing, and that has been proven in the sense that we as humans are flawed in our thinking. Because if we go to, say, the lottery and we pick numbers. We wouldn't pick numbers that were, for instance, one, two, three, four, five, six, because we would say, well, uh, that's so unlikely. No one's going to ever see that number come up, so I won't pick it. But actually, because the selection for the lottery is entirely random, then one, two, three, four, five, six has just as high a likelihood as any other combination of six random numbers picked from those 50. So, Really, I suppose it has been tested because we know that we are prone to think in this flawed way. We say, well, if I do do that, it won't happen. And then we do tend to pay more attention to the odd occasion that it does happen. In other words, we attach significance to a coincidence and think that something important occurred. So I think in some respects, there there is a corpus of psychological uh, research that proves that, that uh, actually we are flawed in our thinking. But I don't think there's any evidence that it's actually real, that Sod's law really does happen. I got you. I got you. Let's go to the lines. We have Matthews in Springs. Hi, Matthews. Hello, Emma. How are you? Good, thanks. And you? Um, okay. May I speak to the dog, please? Yes, go ahead. Dog is available. Okay. I would like to know, how do they test uh, incest? 
DNA in the, in the family, whereby a person has got a, a child with a family member. Mm. Hi, Matthew. In the early days, we, we obviously couldn't do this. But now we have genetic testing. We can read the genetic code of anybody and pretty much anything. And the way that you do this is that you take a sample. Usually you do a mouth swab because there are lots and lots of cells lining your nose and throat that are falling off all the time and they've got a complete copy of your DNA in them. You do that for both parents and you do that for the child. And because a lot of the time children don't have the parents they necessarily think they do. And you extract the DNA from those cells and we decode it. Now, if someone has got... um, a very close match to a parent then you can see when you read the genetic code especially in areas of the genetic code that we target for this kind of investigation which are known to be much more variable between individuals if you see the same codes coming up for the mum and the dad and the child you know that that child is definitely the product of of those two parents and you can also look at the do the same thing to look at the relatedness between two parents and if two parents have got very very close uh, in matching DNA, then it's obviously that, that an incestuous situation has gone on. So it's really to do with how closely matched the individuals are and the presence of or the absence of DNA that's not found within the family, which would indicate that they've been outbreeding. If there's been inbreeding, then the match will be entirely the family's own DNA. There won't be any evidence of, of additional DNA sequences that would be brought by a person who's outside the family unit bringing those additional sequences into the child. Are those sequences only picked up if it goes as far as first and second cousins or how wide must that pool be? What, is, what must the degree of separation be? Well, um, yeah, I see what you're saying. The, the more closely related you are to someone, the more of your genes you have in common. And so when you read the genetic code, you would find if someone is uh, a twin, a, an identical twin, there'd be a 100% match. If someone's a brother and a sister there'll be a 50% match. Now, that doesn't mean it's the same 50% between all brothers and sisters. It means that when you read the genetic code, you will find that half of the code is the same, but half will not be the same. And that's because the half that the dad gives and the half the mum gives is entirely random in each case. And so you get two children where it's different. If you go, therefore, to, um, let's take a uh, grandparent. So you're, you share 50% of your genes with your parents. You'll therefore have 25% with a grandparent. And then by the time you're down to cousins and uncles, it's half of that. So it's 12% and then half again. And so you can see there's a degree of dilution. So we would therefore expect to see a certain proportion that was shared if you say married a cousin, but not more than a certain proportion would be there. If there was more than that proportion, then that person is closer to you than a cousin. I got you. Queen in Kibler Park. Hi. Hello, man. Doctor, I wanted to find out, you know, when you charge your phone or you charge your your laptop and you leave the charger there even after it's registered 100% charged, does it damage the battery in any way? It shouldn't do. In the old days, there was a question of, of overcharging batteries. But in the modern era, we're using lithium-ion batteries, and these batteries are quite intelligent. They know how hot they are, they know how charged they are, they know how much current they need to have put into them in order to charge them at the right rate. And the device has got charging circuitry built in to make sure it's monitoring the activity of the battery, how much current it's taking, how much charge is still in there. So it shouldn't 
continue to charge the battery beyond the point at which it's safe to do so and it won't over discharge the battery either when those batteries shut down they're not shutting down when they're completely empty they're shutting down with some residual charge inside the battery because if you over discharge a lithium-ion battery it will become irreversibly damaged and you won't be able to rescue it even if you re try and recharge it so the the life of these batteries is carefully maintained now by monitoring and controlling for how much charge is going in and out of them and the rate at which it's doing that and that keeps the battery in as good a condition for as long as possible uh, okay all right. Thank you, Dr. Thanks so much, Queen in Kipler Park. Uh, there's a question that says, can I ask the naked scientist, what causes stones in one's salivary gland and how can it be treated? These are called calculi and they are quite common. And the reason that you get scale in your salivary glands is exactly the same reason you get scale in your kettle or in your water geyser, especially around Johannesburg, which is flanked by lots of dolomitic limestone. So very, very hard water in many parts of Joburg. And when you produce these materials in your salivary gland, you're basically taking minerals and water from the bloodstream and turning it into a secretion from the glands that are your salivary glands, which are then squirted out onto your teeth. It's quite enriched for calcium, the purpose of that being that it buffers acidity in the mouth because that's part of the role of saliva is to keep mouth pH from going too low. And also if you've got calcium there, you can help to remineralize teeth because when you eat acid foods or when you eat sugary foods, the bacteria in your mouth convert the sugar into acid and this does erode your teeth. And so by making the saliva a bit alkaline, and calcium rich you help to defer that process slow it down and help to remineralize teeth in the in the sort of rebounds that you get uh, after eating when you tend to deposit material back onto your teeth if you've got high calcium concentration and other salts in the saliva there's a there's a possibility that they will form these small stones or calculi and normally they're so small that they would just wash away but sometimes they can get stuck or lodged in the duct that collects the saliva and once you've got them started once you've got a stone started, it acts as what we call a nidus. It's a nucleation site for more material to join on. And so a small stone begets a big stone. And occasionally they can become big and block things up. And when they do, you can then get pain, you can get inflammation, and you can get swelling. And sometimes someone has to go in and, and hook that stone out. All right, we've got a voice note. Good afternoon, Narel Bukhile. Um, I have a question for Dr. Chris. Um, is hypnosis real? And if so, how does it work? Have a lucky day. Martijn from Pretoria. Thank you, Martijn. Doctor. Hi, Martijn. The answer is it's certainly real, and people who are practitioners of hypnosis are certainly very experienced at putting people into a hypnotic state. But what is not real is when you see stage hypnotists effectively play-acting because that's not real. Hypnosis definitely has effects, and the way it works is that a person is encouraged to enter a state of deep relaxation, divorced from distractions and, and other things that might put them off of being able to think clearly about things, and guided by the person who is hypnotizing them, they can be encouraged to uh, relax, open up, and and explore in a way that, that enables them to challenge, challenge, channel their thoughts without the distraction of, of whatever might be causing them problems. This can be used therapeutically in people with, say, anxiety or addiction problems, in people who want to 
uh, kind of work through a problem and do it in a, in a way that, that is in a controlled and safe environment to, to work through a, a sort of psychological problem. But certainly no one can be persuaded under hypnosis to do things they wouldn't normally want to do. And if you see people doing that on stage, it's, it's absolutely rubbish. I have interviewed people who have done experiments where they've put people in brain scanners and they have want, watched to see what happens when a person enters the state of hypnosis difficult to do this very well in a brain scanner because the scanners are very noisy it's an artificial situation it's claustrophobic and it's therefore not very easy for a person to enter a state of relaxation so they can really think about this uh, in, a, in a way that, that, that would be equivalent to what it's like to, to sit on a therapist's couch but you can certainly see that certain networks in the brain are preferentially engaged when people do become hypnotized in other words when they go into that state of relaxation and they're receptive to people discussing things and that kind of thing so there's definitely a, a network of brain patterns and brain activity that that is engaged during hypnosis but it's similar to patterns of, of activity that are engaged during deep relaxation anyway so it's not like you suddenly throw a magic switch and something that would never normally happen happens it's more that you're being uh, supported and facilitated in entering a state of, of relaxation and, and clear thought so that you can uh, then, as I say, discuss things, talk about problems or develop other strategies or, or enable other psychological coping strategies to, to be embedded, taken on board, considered, processed and so on. All right, another voice note uh, has come through. Hi, Adele May I please ask the doctor there? what makes the atm cards to be unique it's there are so many millions of atm cards in the world what makes them to be unique to a specific uh, pin pin code it's Cabello from tenby thanks Cabello, doctor well the way these cards work in the old days they had just a magnetic strip on the back if you turn the card over you see that brown line mm. written onto that was the information there's still information written on that but most of them now have a pin embedded, a chip rather, embedded in the card. And this is a small microprocessor that contains all the critical data that singles out that card as unique. And when you put it into the reader, it sends various bits of information to the card and retrieves other bits of information off the card. The, the pin system is not as secure, though, as people may think. And a friend of mine, when he was working at the University of Cambridge, that was Stephen Murdoch, took me shopping. And he took me shopping with a device he had built, and I gave him my credit card. He put my credit card into his device and then uh, didn't tell the person in the shop until after we'd done the transaction, but put the device connected to my credit card into her card reader. And then I bought something for lunch, and he just typed in the PIN number 1111. Now, that's not my PIN number, just in case anyone's out there thinking, I'll just quickly write down this PIN number. But it said, thank you, PIN approved. And the transaction was cleared because basically he'd worked out how the uh, machine sends the instruction to the card saying, is this pin OK? And the card then sends back a yes or no signal. And if you just interrupt that communication and send back a yes or no signal as a yes anyway, regardless of what pin you type in, it would activate the card. So um, the, that, that's how actually how it works. But basically written onto that chip is the unique identifier on the card. You are the only customer with that particular number or sequence of numbers, that card number in the world. And when you go online or you go and buy something with that card, it is basically written into that PIN number, into that card identifier, is information about who the issuer of the card is, where they are, and who you are. 
and it will quickly go and do a check. It will send the information on a debit card to your bank and say, can I charge this card this much money, yes or no? And if it says, yes, you can do it, then it says, is the pin okay? And as long as the pin comes back okay, notwithstanding what I just said, then it will clear that transaction and it instantly actually sends the transaction to your bank, takes the money out of your bank and gives it to somebody else. All right, we've got an interesting one here. Please ask the doctor, evolution. History has shown us that evolution leans to the direction of improving the way nature functions in order to survive. Will humans ever evolve further than the current state, given the current climate changes? And if so, what are the possible evolution possibilities? We're all evolving all the time. As we go through life and as the planet changes, as we change, as the environment we've created changes, as the foods that we encounter change, as the water availability and water courses change, these are all different pressures that are brought to bear on us and therefore there is selection pressure on us in the same way as there was historically. Way back in the day, our selection pressures were, am I going to eat tomorrow? What can I catch? How can I defend myself from something or someone horrible, nasty attacking me? Now, in some places, those pressures still exist. But because of supermarkets and the availability of food, really what keeps us alive has shifted from one of not, not knowing where your lunch is coming from to actually uh, managing to survive in a world where there's excess numbers of calories and not become too, too weighty or therefore have high blood pressure and, and heart attacks and things as a consequence of that. We also tend to have a, a culture where we stay up late and go to bed late and get up early. So thriving in a more high-pressured environment where there's artificial light rather than uh, having our days governed by when the sun comes up and when the sun goes to bed. We've shifted from being very physical 40-50% of jobs were physical labour type jobs about 50 years ago. About 2% of jobs now in, in most countries that are um, kind of countries like South Africa, most of those jobs are going to be non-manual jobs. And so people are, are tending to spend a lot more time sitting down. They're not doing that vig vigorous physical activity anymore. So our lifestyles have changed enormously. And as a result, there is still selection pressure. We are still evolving and we'll continue to evolve we will merely be a reflection on what our environment wants us to be. And if we create an environment that selects for people that work a certain way, look a certain way and so on, that's how it's going to be. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. As always, super interesting uh, getting to hear all of the answers and to all of you listening, sending through your questions.